This is Dem Fatal, your Women in Science History podcast. I'm Emlyn Gremlin. And I'm Emma Dilemma. And we're pretty kooky today. <laughs> it's midday. We're it's midday. We're both um deliriously in the midst of writing our dissertation. Yeah, deliriously dissertationing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So life is hectic and yet. <laughs> You know, we come back down to earth while we discuss. <laughs> do we? Or, do well, get... today's lady oh. sent things away from earth, actually. Oh, that's an interesting segue. <laughs> <laughs> that's a segue that was not planned. Um, it seemed if... well thought out. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah, if I had planned that terrible segue, <laughs> I would be very sad of myself. So the segue, hours. my actual segue that I did plan is not that much better. Ooh, tell me. Segue to your segues. <laughs> okay, so Emlyn, <laughs> you've heard of the movie Hidden Figures, right? <laughs> I have. Did you see it? Or I watched, uh, I would say, four-fifths of it on a plane and oh. then missed the end. Yeah. I but mean, I, I have a feeling. Can I can guess. imply. I can guess. <laughs> um, so that movie was about three women. Katherine Johnson, Mary Jackson, and Dorothy Vaughn, who mm-hmm. all started as computers at the NASA Langley Center in Washington, D.C., and like worked their way up to become engineers and rocket scientists and whatnot. Um, right? Yep. Okay. Confirmed. Well, one day... We'll discuss those three women. (laughs) But today is not that day. But today, I'm going to tell you about a different NASA-based hidden figure. Okay. From the same... More hidden. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) From the same... Though, I think you've probably heard of it. Okay. Um, From the same time period, who worked at um, NASA in Cleveland at the Glenn Research Center. Okay. And her name is Annie Jean Easley. Yes. Have you heard of her? Yes, yeah. I have. So, yeah, that's our woman of the hour, Annie Easley. Nice. <laughs> okay. So, I know nothing about her, though. Yeah. I mean... I just recall the name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Annie was born on April 23rd, 1933, in Birmingham, Alabama, when segregation was still legal and common in the South. Annie was raised by her mother, who, from an early age, encouraged Annie to work hard and pursue a good education. Yeah, and throughout Annie's life would would often tell her you can be anything you want, but you have to work at it. Yeah. And that's something that Annie, you know, she lived by those words her whole life and remembered them, you know, into older age and, and whatnot. Um although like schools for African American children weren't usually um you know, things at that point were, like, separate but equal. Schools, yeah. we, as we know, like, weren't equal, mm-hmm. especially in the South. Um, her mother would try to find the best schools for her okay. in the area. And so Annie got a really good education and, and graduated. By the time she graduated high school, she was a valedictorian of her class. Nice. 
And she really loved school too. She thought it was really fun and something she would say later on in life. So I I should say most of what we know about her comes from one interview that she did (laughs) in 2001. Some a woman, Sandra Johnson, interviewed her for a NASA like oral history project. Cool. And so a lot of this we know because Annie herself told Sandra all this information. Gotcha. Okay. So she thought school was really fun and she really hated that the media would say things like, oh, poor kids, you have to go back to school. Summer's ending. Mm -hmm. And she wished that the media would make school seem more exciting. (laughs) Like, I'm excited. Yeah. You're making it seem uncool that I'm so excited. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, Mm. she really liked school. Um, And growing up, she wanted to be a nurse because she liked, she wanted to help people Mm -hmm. and Nursing and teaching were pretty common careers for women in the 30s and 40s, I think. But after high school, she attended Xavier University in New Orleans and majored in pharmacy. Okay. And she says that her interest in pharmacy probably stemmed from buying candy in drugstores as a kid. Interesting. Like, she just liked going into the Mm drugstores to get ice cream and candy and just kind of... I don't know, grew to love them in a weird way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess like it's a bizarre thing when drugstores are like part medicine, part just like sugar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Getting you hooked. Yeah. So so that was her one of her first interests um, after nursing, I guess. And she attended college for a couple years, but didn't get her degree and instead returned to Birmingham um, where she got married essentially. And then while she was there for maybe a year or two, she worked as a substitute teacher and in the meantime would help other African Americans in the area study for and pass their literacy tests that they were required to take in order to vote. Gotcha. Because of the Jim Crow laws that were established in the 1800s. Pretty effed up. Yeah. But cool of her. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So in 1955, this was about a year after she left school and moved back to Birmingham. Mm -hmm. She moved with her husband to Cleveland, Ohio, because he had family there and had just been discharged from the military. Okay. And I do not know his name. (laughs) (laughs) Fine. This podcast isn't about him. I also couldn't figure out what her mother's name was because in one place it said one name and another place it said a completely different name and one of them referenced the other one and i was like did you even read this like different last names or first names or both, both? <laughs> okay, that's so it's and and she didn't say it at all in the interview that i read so yeah okay could she have had two moms unlikely Okay. I mean, technic like physically, <laughs> yeah, you know. Anyway, but she uh, she was raised by her mom, is what everything said. Gotcha. Yeah. Anyway, whoever that woman was, I don't know her who, what her mom's name was. I don't know what her husband's name was. Um, but they moved to Cleveland. Okay. And she looked for programs. Once they got there, she wanted to continue her degree in pharmacy. So she looked for pharmacy programs but couldn't find any in the area mm-hmm. um, because Cleveland State had just 
gotten rid of their pharmacy program for some reason. Okay. Which is like, everybody needs drugs. That yeah. seems like a weird program to do away with, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. At some point, she decided she would have to start looking for something else to do um, because she needed a job or a degree or, you know, wanted to move on. Mm -hmm. And it was unusual then for a young woman to leave her husband and search for a career. Yeah. She says, at least. That's I mean, it was unusual. Yeah. Right. She came across an article about twin sisters working as human computers at what was then called the Aircraft Engine Research Lab in the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, which is the predecessor to the NASA Glenn Research Center. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So at that time, NASA was called NACA. Yeah, yeah. NASA. NACA. NACA, I NACA. guess. I don't know if people say NACA or NACA or NACA. NACA. Let me know. Um, hashtag NACA or NACA. <laughs> How are we going to... Lowercase a, uppercase a. However you want to, Great. listeners. These hashtags are catching on like wildfire. <laughs> yeah, we get so many um, ats. <laughs> Hashtag 25 women of STEM. <laughs> so, so, yeah, she saw this. She read this article about these twin computers at NACA. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she was like, oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. And she always liked math and she was good at math. And that's what the computers were doing, essentially, were calculations and complex calculations for engineers and researchers at NASA. So she applied for a job in the computer services division and she got it. Nice. And when she started, she was one of four African-American employees of 2,500 people. It's a lot of people. Yeah. And everyone she worked with was white, you yeah. know. Um, so it was, I don't know. When asked if, if this affected her in any way, she says um, her mentality was, I just have my own attitude. I'm out here to get the job done. And I knew I had the ability to do it. And that's where my focus was. So. Yeah. Seems fair. Yeah. Just kind of there to do the job and trying not to let weird stereotypes Mm -hmm. or discrimination you know stop her from doing her job yeah there's like pictures of all the apollo missions and like all the crew and the people behind the scenes and it's just like a sea of white men yeah (laughs) it's pretty funny yeah it's pretty nuts (laughs) um so calculators the like you know handheld devices okay yes existed at the time but were only capable of doing simple math like addition and subtraction so her job was to run complex computations for researchers um, like analyzing problems doing calculations by hand and looking up solutions to exponential or like logarithmic problems in these big tables um, all to help simulate conditions for the new nuclear reactor that the lab was building oh my yeah so I have to say she was part of a lot of different projects. Yeah. So as a mathematician and then as a programmer and engineer, um, she had hands in many different things. Mm-hmm. And she it's hard to tell exactly how much she contributed to every project and exactly what her contributions were because yeah. every time in the interview, um, Sandra asks you know, oh, like, what did you specifically contribute to something? 
she kind of deflects and is like, this was a team project yeah. and just talks about teamwork a lot. But anyway, I tried to parse out what I could yeah. at least. So we'll see. Okay. After a few years, NASA started using machine computers, <laughs> oh, okay, which are mm-hmm. what we now know of as computers. And Annie wanted to stay at NASA. So she obviously had to adapt to the machines that were taking over a large part of her job. Yeah. And she did. She learned how to use them and became adept at using the computers. And at that time, you know, they had to take instructions. What she would do is take instructions for calculations from the engineers and translate them to the key punch cards that were then submitted to one computer for calculation. So crazy. Yeah, like it's hard to even visualize really. And then that computer would then give out new giant punch cards that need to be taken to a different computer that would then need to be taken to a final computer that would give them this big table of answers, at which point she would like plot the data or summarize it Uh for the engineers or something. Yeah. (laughs) And eventually, you know, as technology became more advanced and as she you know, got to know the computers more, they would hire people to do the hole punching. Yeah. <laughs> they would, you know, so she she definitely moved up pretty quickly in terms of um, knowing how to, like, use and operate the computers in NASA. So um, she also began to learn how to code and eventually became proficient in uh, SOAP or Simple Object access soap? protocol yeah soap nice. and nice nice which i don't think is really used anymore and in fortran the formula translating system gotcha. which yeah. that's used right i think so i've heard that before <laughs> didn't um grace hopper wasn't she involved in making fortran you put me on the spot okay sorry i, f- I, we I feel like we talked about her. fortran but i don't yeah she did cobol I think Fortran was similar. Maybe a sub... I don't don't remember. Yeah. Um, Annie said that she didn't really use COBOL. That was more for for different departments or something. Yeah, I know businesses use COBOL. Yeah, right, right. Uh Look at all these things we've learned. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Helps me in my everyday life. Yeah, just the names of different coding. I'm like, I don't know the difference. You ever heard of COBOL? (laughs) I have. Uh, businesses use it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And okay. she says it was a lot of fun, like, running back and forth between the computers and being involved with all these, like, engineers and projects mm-hmm. and whatever. So she really loved everything about working at NASA because it was, like, this this little city with firefighters and a print shop and photographers. Like, just a cool campus to yeah. work on and a really exciting time. Because, you know... So this was the late 50s, early 60s that she started there. Mm -hmm. And Sputnik had launched in 1957. And in 1961, JFK had told the world that the U.S. was going to be the first to send a man to the moon. Yeah. So this was like in the middle of the space race yeah. and just a cool It's got to felt crazy. There. I'm sure it was a lot of late nights. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And she says like there were a lot of late nights, but she thought it was so fun mm-hmm. that she didn't care. It's a good, yeah. good attitude. Um, okay. And some of her... So the timeline here, I don't know, really. Make it up. It's like 
decade by decade okay. pretty much. So <laughs> that's how we're going to go. That's as fine as I need yeah. it to be. <laughs> in some of her earlier work in the 60s at NASA, she helped write tests for recording tapes that they placed in jet planes that recorded information about the ozone layer. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so NASA was sending up these planes to get gather information about the ozone layer and and learn about how it was changing and how maybe we were affecting it and oh she had written some programs to like put in those that those recording systems cool. I think. Yeah. She also worked on a software engineering team that designed software used in rocket launches. So as part of this team, she was a major contributor to the code used on the Centaur rocket stage, which since its creation has been used in over 240 rocket launches. Oh, so it's like the base that things launch off of? Yeah. So this took me some Wikipedia uh-huh. Wikipedia to figure out. So some rockets are comprised of multiple stages. I think it's just kind of parts where... Mm-hmm. Each stage contains their own engine yeah, and propellant yeah, yeah. and are useful either together or at different times in the launching mm-hmm. process Yeah, for different purposes. So, for instance, uh, upper stages like the Centaur were designed to operate at high altitude and little or no atmospheric pressure and were used to inject things into orbit. Yeah, okay. Yeah, or accelerate payloads into higher energy orbit, like satellites and stuff. Um, And so the Centaur was the world's first high-energy upper stage. It burned liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, and its first successful launch was on May 30th, 1966, when it boosted the first surveyor toward the moon. And the soft landing of of this surveyor, Surveyor 1, on the moon, was NASA's first landing on any extraterrestrial body. Awesome. So she contributed to the programming of yeah, that. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Nice. And some things say she wrote the program for that. Mm-hmm. She would not say she did anything alone. Yeah. So it's really hard for me to tell um, exactly what she did. And the code that Annie wrote for this rocket has not only been used in future iterations of the Centaur, but it went on to be used in things like military weather and communication satellites. Very cool. And let's see. This is just a side note, I guess. In her spare time, she would also tutor elementary school and high school kids in Cleveland. I don't know why I added that there. (laughs) It, it, It was a nice transition. Yeah. Okay. Um, boosting things into space, <laughs> boosting things in the people in their career. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Boost. She's booster. Okay. Around this time, she also decided she wanted to go back to school and get her degree. But boost this, herself. Yeah, boost herself. Mm-hmm. And this time, she wanted to get it in mathematics because she thought that she said that she was still sort of seen as a sub professional at NASA. Yeah. Um, because she didn't have a degree. Mm-hmm. So she really wanted that college degree. Yeah. And um, I think she might have been divorced from her husband at this point. I know it happened. I don't know when. Okay. So she would occasionally take math courses at night at Cleveland State University. Um, and she kind of did that on and off for a few years. Then in the early 70s, she decided 
I'm just going to do this. I want to finish it Mm -hmm. now. Um, So she started taking two courses outside of work and then three. This is while working full time. That's crazy. And she liked, she was always really into extracurricular things Uh and had like a very um, big social life. And so she would, says she was also dating a lot and going out dancing and stuff. I love it. Just very busy. Yeah. (laughs) At this time in her life. Um, You're 30s, 40s? (laughs) 40s. How old? 40s? Yeah. 40s are the best yeah. time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mix, mix and mingle. <laughs> exactly. So like I said, she wanted to go back to college so that she could maybe get promotions at NASA. But also, NASA had paid for other people to go back to college and take classes and finish their degrees. Okay. When she asked her boss... If they could do that, he said, no, NASA doesn't do that. Uh-huh. Even though she showed him examples from of other people she knew that NASA had, had paid to get their degree in math. Mm-hmm. And, and she was taking classes that were directly related to what she was doing at NASA at the time. So she says she can't say 100% that... She knows why he wouldn't pay for her classes, Mm -hmm. but um, she decided to just go anyway and pay for it herself because it was that important to her. And when when she was in the final stretch, she decided to take leave without pay for three months to finish her degree, even though she had known other people who NASA had given leave with pay to get their degree. That's such and again they denied her. Uh Yeah. So just a lot of things holding her her back yeah. you know uh different levels um so yeah she she says she can't say certainly that this was because of her race or gender but she did experience more blatant discrimination yeah so for example a photo was once taken of her group working on a computer and when it was placed in the entryway of her building she had been cut out of it <laughs> God. Yeah, like there are a lot of these sorts of blatant microaggressions <sighs> and then also less blatant microaggressions that she had to deal with, you know, her whole life. Yeah, really. um, that's and, crazy. That's yeah. that feels so intentional. Yes. Like, I feel like there's a lot of times where people do something racially biased. It's not as explicit and in the forefront but i guess that's also the 60s so blatant racism is kind of the name of the game yeah yes that's that's awful yeah it's bitchy like yeah it's just like (laughs) why yeah it's really crazy it seems like a waste of your time you have to find a weird sized like it's not gonna fit in any frame now because you've like (laughs) you've made it a weird size and it's it's like really you took the picture like you asked her to be in the picture yeah where i mean it's just a strange thing like what if it was just like they just cut out her like face yeah but there are a ton of really cool pictures of mm-hmm. her like in front of different computers cool. and machines and i'll post them and cool she just looks like a total like 70s badass nice. like with all these crazy is there poofed scant- shoulders is yeah that, is that 80s or 70s I think that was 80s, but but it looks very Stanley Kubrick-esque, like some of the pictures, because they were designing things at NASA after 2001 A Space Odyssey. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So anyway, 
she looks she eventually got into pictures <laughs> alone and looks like a badass. Awesome. So, Great. Um group pictures suck anyways. Yeah. And let's see. When asked if she was very aware of discrimination in the company, she said, um, you know, it doesn't matter where you're located when people have their biases and prejudices. Yes, I am aware. My head is not in the sand, but my thing is, if I can't work with you, I will work around you. And I was not about to be so discouraged that I'd walk away. So she really just... Yeah. Yeah. She says that over and over again, she would tell... She would repeat like what her mother would always tell mm-hmm. her, which is just like you can do anything if you work hard. Yeah, and so she lived again, just lived by that that motto. Really, okay. Let's see. After getting her degree, she found that the ceiling had moved. Of course, mm-hmm. as in now that she had a degree, they would say things like, "Actually, you need more training." to get a promotion or gotcha. which is like she'd already worked at nasa for 20 years <laughs> what training you know yeah it's anyway but she was able to move around the company mm-hmm. and still work on a lot of interesting projects and um after the space race when they were laying people off because there was just less funding for nasa um, they never laid her off, so yeah. she still worked there for like 34 years. Let's see. So yeah, after getting her degree, when the race to the moon began to settle down and funding at NASA started steering away from rockets and toward alternate energy use, mm-hmm. Annie began working on projects related to that as part of the energy directorate. So one project she did involved monitor- monitoring the electrical use of something called cogeneration. Yeah. Where they would try to get byproducts from coal and steam. Okay. I, I don't know. I it was too much for me. <laughs> <laughs> but I think so what I think is they were making energy use calculations to determine the efficiency of a new a potential new type of power plant. Okay. Like whether or not there was still energy that wasn't being used by yeah coal or plants. could they make it more efficient yeah, in okay. some way yeah but i didn't understand all the science there's one paper on it or one report on it and but when sandra asked her about it she was like i don't remember any of that stuff <laughs> and then i i did the report is really long yeah, so i didn't no, read it don't do it yeah. In general, she developed and implemented code that was used in determining solar, wind, and energy projects for NASA. And so, specifically, she would help determine things like the best time of day to run energy-heavy processes. Okay. So, she, you know, helped NASA figure out that they should run things that need a lot of energy at night. Mm -hmm. Because that's when energy use in the city was lowest. Yeah. She also worked on projects related to calculating the life use of storage batteries, like the batteries used in electric cars uh-huh. today. And this research was necessary to the creation of hybrid cars cool. that are available today. Though, when, <laughs> when asked to elaborate on her contributions to this project and how she felt when she saw some of the first hybrid cars driving around, she joked, so much has happened in my life, I don't really give it a big thought. <laughs> I'm happy at the time when I see it, but my big thing now is trying to learn to snowboard. <laughs> I love that. She was like, and this was in 2001. 
So she was like 70 or something and learning oh, to snowboard. Yes. Yeah. That's when I'll learn to snowboard. It scares me too much. Me I think too. maybe once you're like closer to the end, you're like, yeah. I got to try these things. Just fling it- myself down the mountain. Yeah, I'll be yeah. fine. But she also added after that that overall she just felt great about being part of a big family yeah. at NASA that accomplished so many things. I thought you meant about snowboarding. But oh, yes. yeah. yeah. She well, probably felt she, great about that, too. She did, yeah. <laughs> In the late 70s, um, she moved over to the launch vehicles directorate, which eventually became the engineering directorate, where she remained until retiring in 1989. With this group, she would travel to many of the rocket launches. Cool. Yeah. Um, programming or calculating things on site to help with the launches and make sure they were safe and went well. Pretty I can't major. even imagine. Yeah. <laughs> that seems really high stress. Yeah, right? high stakes. Yeah. And she, I don't think she was involved with the shuttle launches directly, but she would watch them sometimes yeah. while she was there. She would also help NASA recruit new mathematicians and engineers and she worked for some time as an equal opportunity counselor in which she helped supervisors address issues of gender race and age discrimination at nasa because well she says that most people just didn't even know discrimination happened until it happened to them Mm -hmm. so they had aged to a point where nasa was trying to kick them out all of a sudden, they're like, there's so much discrimination at NASA, where mm-hmm. she's been saying it since the day she got there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they had no idea how to handle discrimination complaints. So she would help uh, mediate some of these discrimination complaints. And she would help departments uh, try to change such that discrimination complaints were less likely to occur. That seems so, like a good proactive... Yeah, like lessen discrimination in general. Yeah. Okay. In 1989, she retired and spent most of her time volunteering, like tutoring, um, and she r- ran multiple ski clubs in Ohio. Like she was the president. Where do you ski in Ohio? She was the president of uh, the NASA Ski Club, and then she also ran a lot bunch of other ones. Where do you ski? That's Where a do really you? Really good question. Isn't Ohio like the flattest state? <laughs> Is maybe, it cross country skiing? Maybe they would go to New York or something. The Adirondacks. I don't know. Could be. Yeah. Um. There might be like some small mountains i've been to ohio yeah i know (laughs) (laughs) i'm not convinced (laughs) maybe that's why she could do learn there you know that's true bunny hills cross country maybe maybe cross country i can get behind i can understand that there is snow there yeah 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 yeah. that's a good i didn't even think about that though (laughs) when i was reading it but she would they would like go on on long trips you know okay maybe and she remained active in other clubs and society like the Business and Professionals Women's Association. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. This was kind of a random thing that I didn't know where to put this in. Give okay. it to me. While there wasn't a strict dress code at NASA, there were, you know, unwritten rules for business attire. And at that time, women were not supposed to wear pants in the workplace. Mm-hmm. But pants were becoming more common in the 70s with women outside of the workplace. Mm-hmm. Those bell bottoms. Yeah. Right. So Annie remembered the first day she wore pants to work in 1970. Scandal. She, yeah. She and her room supervisor 
Yeah, had already just started wearing pants outside of work, and one day got together and decided they would both wear pants to work (laughs) on the same day. And they did, and a woman that they worked with came up to them that day and said she was just waiting for someone else to come in (gasps) in pants. Yes! And she says that she never saw that lady wear a dress ever again. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah, and she says, you know, this is a minor change, but it took some of the emphasis off of what they wore, put Mm -hmm. it more on what they were producing. Yeah. Just little things, little, like, cool things that happen. Yeah. That's like, just that's a that's a nice bold move. Yeah, exactly. Um, and she died in 2011. Oh in man, Cleveland, I believe. Um, yeah, at the in her 80s, I guess, 70s. I didn't right. write it down. I'm sorry. <laughs> when was she born? 1933. So 80s, 80, like 87. Yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah. Okay. Nice. That's <laughs> yeah. awesome. And so that is Annie Easley. So it was like I said, it was really hard to tell specifically like what you know, she didn't brag about herself mm-hmm. and her accomplishments. It was It's probably not written down anywhere. Like it's they're not, not they're yeah. not computers were not given credit. Yeah. Anyways, I feel like for what they did. So there weren't they wouldn't be like, Oh well this computer did this and this computer did this. Right. And yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that's really hard to tease apart. Yeah, so... But she contributed to all those things. So. Yeah, she she worked on a lot of really cool projects. And it sounds I think fun. she was a major Minus the part. description discrimination. Yeah, minus the discriminations. <laughs> well, she really does say she had a lot of fun. Yeah. And, um, and to her, it was important. Like, her... She was a big part of making the people she worked with, like, a family, kind yeah. of. So she worked a lot in the Christmas shows oh, and, nice. like... Yeah, you know, held a lot of dinners and things. So, I think she got along with most yeah. people, at least. Yeah, yeah. Except whoever's the photographer yeah, or the wall decorator. Yeah, she just couldn't, you know, maybe reach, um, or go as far in the company mm-hmm. as other people. I yeah. think um, she was held back in in those ways. Yeah, but, uh, made the most of of what she could do and yeah. tried to like. And just worked really hard. Yeah, yeah, sounds like it. That's awesome. Yeah, I love it. Yay! All right, we're back. This is the women who work section. Um, yeah, where we talk about ladies making history today. All right, I've got a quick one for us. That's a, a local fave. I don't oh. know. It's it's local. I don't know why I said it's a local fave. I can't. Think of what it is. Okay. okay. My shout out goes to Dr. Karen Ullenbeck, oh, who's a yes. UT retired professor, who is the first woman to receive the Abel Prize, Woo. which is a prestigious award. <laughs> Can't say prestigious. A prestigious award that recognizes contributions to the field of mathematics that are of extraordinary depth and uh influence yeah it's like the nobel prize for math exactly yeah there's no nobel prize for math and this is also given out by the norwegians um (laughs) who i guess just decide who's important yeah it's very interesting (laughs) like sweden and norway are like the people who give out these big prizes i don't know what is thanks thanks guys what do you know sweden and norway healthcare hashtag (laughs) healthcare uh happiness <laughs> leave of absences for uh 
mothers mothers and, and fathers i think yeah. fathers get like mm-hmm. six months or something crazy anyways this is not about sweden <laughs> and norway so this prize will be given out by his majesty mm. king harold v of norway uh not harold the fifth yeah <laughs> <laughs> is it i don't know it's harold the fifth <laughs> <laughs> I am like total. This is what I've spelled. His Majesty Kind Harold V. <laughs> kind old Harold. Kind v. old Harold V. <laughs> King Harold the Fifth. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's a V. I don't know his last name. Uh, no, I I think it's Her- Harold is his last name. It's all oh, very complicated. I don't know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> This isn't about him. Harold V sounds like a designer, you know, <laughs> like true. a Harold V bag or something. Um, <laughs> v bag. <laughs> v bag sounds very bad. Okay. Sorry to insult your majesty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so uh, this prize, uh, so she's been given this prize, quote, for her pioneering achievements in geometric partial differential equations, oh gauge theory, and integratable systems, Whoa. and for the fundamental impact of her work on analysis, geometry, and mathematical physics. That's a lot. So I'm not going to get into her, like, (laughs) what she's done. But specifically, she helped give a rigorous mathematical underpinnings Mm. to techniques commonly used by physicists studying interactions between particles and forces. Um, And this work led to her co-pioneering the field known as geometric analysis, wow, which is now commonly used by many mathematicians. Yeah. So it has lots of spiraling effects, and she's done a bunch of different things. That's amazing. So she says in response to the news, to quote a colleague of mine, John Tate, who also received the Abel Prize, I don't know if I deserve it, but I'll take it. Aw, that's sweet. <laughs> and then I just have some more quotes from her because okay. I, I yeah. like her. Go for okay. it. So um, she says in 1997... I regarded anything to do with people as being sort of a horrible profession. (laughs) Oh my gosh. A horrible profession. (laughs) Which is why she liked mathematics. She didn't have to deal with people. Professors have to deal with people. I know. She she does like, she's a very good mentor too. Okay, good. good. Um, So in discussing being a role model, Uh she says, what you really need to do is show students how imperfect people can be and still Uh, succeed. I may be a wonderful mathematician and famous because of it, but I'm also very human. Yeah. That's great. And then finally, in reference to her career, she says, All in all, I have found great delight and pleasure in the pursuit of mathematics. Along the way, I have made great friends and worked with a number of creative and interesting people. I have been saved from boredom, dourness, and self-absorption. One cannot ask for more. Um, so that's my shout yeah. out going to Karen Ullenbeck. Oh, congratulations, Karen. Yeah. That's UT great. alum or yeah. UT retired professor. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Woo-hoo! I guess that's our sewed. <sighs> that's it. I mean, the, I tried to look at more of her research, and she like explains the mathematical way soap bubbles in a three D space, and I was like, I can't. That's crazy. I don't know what the know. use of it is. You never know. That's what's great <sighs> I about know. science and math. Is math <laughs> yeah. is like once you solve this problem, it's like this solves everything. Yeah. <laughs> um. Okay. So this was our episode. <laughs> Uh, um, if you liked it, please rate, review, subscribe, yeah. share, tell your friend, tell your mom. Buy merch. Buy merch. Thanks to Caitlin Friesen for our merch and yeah. all of our art. Uh, thanks to Artichoke for our music. 
And y'all, thank you. And go. Go stimulate yourself. <laughs> By circa 1820, she ran a fossil